have a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1036. Perhaps you've heard of the old proverb, what goes around comes around. Or maybe you've heard of something like karma. The more good you, the, the more good or bad you perform, the more good or bad it will bring you in the future. Both ideas share this view of history that is cyclical, meaning history has no beginning, uh, no goal, really. The universe just passes through an eternal recurrence of events. You find this in ancient Greek thought among the Stoics. It's present in Hinduism and Buddhism. Nietzsche even entertained this idea as well. If the universe is infinite, as he believed, and there's only a finite quantity of energy, then everything must repeat itself eventually. And when history is cyclical, morality is determined by ideas like, well, what goes around comes around. Would you want that to keep happening to you in the future? Is this going to improve your next reincarnate existence? But viewing history this way actually runs contrary to what our Creator has revealed. In Scripture, God reveals that history is linear. It has a beginning at creation. It also has an end. And there are repeated patterns designed into that history, such as exile and return and uh, the exodus and a new exodus, right, in Isaiah, and and then a final exodus in, in Christ. And there are also repeated days and weeks and seasons, but the Lord has designed all of it to to progress, right? To progress toward His designed end in a new heaven and a new earth. But one step in getting us to the new heaven and new earth is final judgment. Judgment stands at the end of history, and therein lies a significant piece to our moral outlook. We must live in ways that please the Lord because the Lord will judge. History is heading to judgment. A great harvest awaits us all. And so the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for it? Look at God's word in verse 14. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So we are continuing the seven signs in chapters 12 to 15. And these signs, uh, this is number six now. These signs are telling a story uh, of that, that lasts from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return. Um, and the events that we see depicted here uh, are associated with Jesus' return. God depicts final judgment using the metaphor of a great harvest. Uh, but unlike the harvests that you're used to, where there's, there's going to be another season to plant, uh, this, this one is the final harvest. Uh, the whole present age, the, it's viewing the whole present age as the growing season, uh, and it's growing like a crop, and there will be a final harvest with no more harvests to, to follow. It's final, it's the end. So again, the question is, are you ready? The first image is that of a grain harvest. We see this in verses 14 and 16, to, to, to verse 16. It doesn't use the word wheat uh, or grain, uh, but the word behind fully ripe in verse 15 is different from the one that's used in verse 18 of the grapes being ripe, and it means to dry up, like when grain is ready to harvest. More important, though, is the one like a son of man in verse 14. And some view him as an angel. After all, verse 15 says, another angel, implying perhaps that the figure in verse 14 is an angel. Uh, They'd also say, you know, if the son of man figure is Jesus, then, then why is the angel in verse 15 telling him what to do? Uh, but these aren't insurmountable problems. Another angel could also recall the angels that we have already seen in verses 6 and 8 and 9. Uh, and the command in verse 15 comes not necessarily from the angel himself, but from God's temple in heaven. So more likely, the one like a son of man is Jesus himself, and he is now fulfilling his father's will to judge. In chapter 1, verse 7, it was Jesus who comes with the clouds. In chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is the one like a son of man. Also, we have the testimony of Jesus himself, who on several occasions described uh, his return with the imagery we observe here. So Luke 21, 27, for example, then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So that's how I take it here. The one like a son of man is Jesus. And there are several things to note about him. Uh, First of all, he comes seated on a white cloud. That is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, uh, where we see God's Messiah called there, one like a son of man. And he comes to receive dominion over the nations. God grants his Messiah the power to judge. But it's more than that, sitting on a cloud, uh, recalls places in the Psalms uh, that depict God riding into battle uh, on his chariot. Um, You know, in the same way that, you know, when when ancient kings rode into uh, a city on their chariots, there were clouds 
billowing of dust billowing beneath the chariot and and that's what we're seeing here god is uh jesus uh on the cloud chariot right uh, some of the psalms speak of god making the clouds his chariot and that's what we're seeing here jesus is approaching as the great warrior He's also wearing a golden crown, verse 14 says. It's a sign of, uh, it's a sign of royal dignity. Uh, and in Revelation, it's, in particular, it's a, it's a sign of victory. Uh, and, and so, as we've seen elsewhere in Revelation, Jesus is the king from, Ju- is the king from Judah's line, right? Chapter 5, uh, who has conquered. He has victory. And then lastly, he has a sharp sickle in his hand. And a sickle was an instrument used to to cut grain. And so since the judgment here is being compared to a harvest, it makes sense that he's got a sickle in his, in his hand, and it's a sharp one. A dull sickle isn't effective, but Jesus' judgment will be effective. Uh, the prophet Joel expected God to execute final judgment by putting in the sickle uh, same here, only now we're getting the full story, right? God enacts his judgment in the person of Jesus. And so not only is Jesus a great warrior, not only is he a conquering king, uh, but he is also the divine judge. And as divine judge, he executes God's final judgment in a twofold way. In the grain harvest, Jesus will gather in the righteous. That's one way he will execute God's will. He will gather in the righteous. Now, someone could argue that both the grain harvest and the grape harvest uh, speak only to God punishing his enemies. Um, But several clues lead me another direction here. Uh, One is how John described the 144,000 back in verse 4. He sees the picture of God's redeemed, and he calls them first fruits for God. Okay, first fruits are a sign that the rest of the harvest is coming. And it seems fitting that Jesus, now in verse 16, swings his sickle across the earth to gather the whole harvest of believers to himself. Also, when we look at some, uh, some of the teachings uh, uh, of the Gospels, the final grain harvest includes more uh, than just punishing the wicked. Uh, it includes gathering the righteous, especially when it talks about the grain itself. Uh, So John the Baptist, for example, speaks uh, of Jesus gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, Jesus repeats the same teaching in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. The harvest, he said, is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then Jesus adds this, then the righteous, and in the parable, the righteous are the wheat that's been gathered into the barn. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So, yes, I think there is a judgment piece to, to the grain harvest, but the grain itself represents the final ingathering of God's elect people. And so the full number will be complete. The final martyrs will have given their lives. The, the work of missions will be finished. 
uh, and the Lord will, will gather His righteous ones to Himself from across the earth. Uh, and that seems to be the focus of the grain harvest. The grape harvest, by contrast, is without question focused on the judgment of God's enemies. We see that in verses 17 to 20. You know, they get this other angel, and he comes from the temple in heaven. He's got a sharp sickle as well. And, and if we read the Gospels, we shouldn't be surprised by this because we see that God will, will exer- execute judgment not only through Jesus, but also through Jesus and his holy angels. Um, and so that's what we're seeing here. And in verse 18, another angel comes. But more specifically, notice how this angel comes from the altar and he has authority over the fire. Now, why would that be important? Why, why throw that in there about he's at the altar and he's also the angel over the fire? Well, because God is reminding us how to view the enactment of his judgments here. Uh, if you recall, back in chapter 6, verse 9, is where we first see this altar, and it is the martyrs who are crying out under the altar, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Right? And then we skip forward, and we see the altar again in chapter 8, verse 3. An angel stands at that same altar, and he has a golden bowl full uh, of our prayers. And he mixes our prayers with incense and with fire. Here's this angel, right? Mixing our prayers with incense and fire, and he throws it on the earth. Chapter 8, verse 3. And what's happening here now in chapter 14 is God is is tying all these visions together. They, They inform one another. The judgments of the grape harvest come in answer to our cries for God's justice. God is answering the church's cries by judging his enemies. The angel calls with a loud voice, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle, it says, across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, of all the portraits, of all the the metaphors, for judgment that's used in, in Scripture. Uh, this is one of the most gruesome. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 13, if you want to flip back in your Bibles, uh, there is where it comes from. Uh, it's the, main, the, the, the primary backdrop here is Joel. Um, chapter 3, verse 13, that speaks of God's final judgment. Um, And in that prophecy, um, in verse 12, the Lord's judgment is likened to him gathering the nations for for a great war. He says, "Let let the nations stir themselves up, God says, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the valley of the valley of Yahweh's judgment. But the irony here is that once the Lord gathers the nations for a fight, the Lord just sits in judgment. And this is Joel's way of saying the nations don't have a chance. Right? God God gathered them just to announce their fate. And so Joel, we come now to to Joel 3.13, and he compares God's judgment to this great harvest. Put in the sickle... 
for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So what's going on here is that God's enemies are being compared to grapes filling uh, the the wine press, and the Lord then tramples them underfoot until their blood flows. But notice what fills the vats. It is their evil, their great evil. So the, the blood of the grape, so to speak, coming out is their evil. And their evil is so great that it's filling up the vats. In other words, their final destruction was deserved. It was deserved. It's it's a picture of God destroying evil so that the other good things, right? It's, It's not just, judgment's not just an end in itself. It's got a goal of the other things of the new heavens and the new earth flourishing, which the rest of Joel's prophecy goes on to describe as hills flowing with milk and a fountain coming from God's throne and and, and refreshing everything. He's got to get rid of the evil in order for the good to flourish. So Isaiah 63, verse 3, is another one. If you want to flip there to Isaiah 63, is another one. In uh, another place in Scripture where this image comes up. And uh, it's in the context of uh, Edom. Edom is a, has got a terrible history opposing Israel. Uh, when, when Babylon ransacked Jerusalem, uh, Edom took advantage of the situation. Uh, they, 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 didn't, they didn't come to help Israel. They kind of stood aloof. And then when Babylon ransacked the city, they... They then came into the city and looted everything. Uh, And it describes Edom rejoicing and gloating over the downfall of God's people. And so in his jealous love for his people, as we come down to Isaiah 63, the Lord goes to war against Edom, which is the enemy of his people, right? And And in Isaiah 63, the prophet sees the Lord as this great warrior. He's returning from battle against Edom. And from a distance, the prophet asks, who is this? This is Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then the Lord answers, it is I speaking in righteousness mighty to save. But as the Lord draws near, Isaiah notices there's there's something peculiar here about his attire. His clothes are not crimson because they're dyed with, with these expensive colors. Why, he asks, is your apparel red? and your garments like this who treads in the winepress? And then the Lord answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood spattered on my garments." 
and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. There's there's no one to help because nobody else is righteous, is the point. I looked around for somebody to do this. There wasn't anybody. Did it myself. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's that's the backdrop. And in Revelation, John is borrowing this imagery from the Old Testament, but he applies it to Jesus. In chapter 19, verse 15 of Revelation, it says that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so Jesus is the warrior who comes to crush the enemies of God's people. Again, like we saw, judgment itself isn't the goal. Uh, in, in, in Joel, same here in Isaiah, judgment itself isn't the end. It, it's, it's so that his people can flourish in the new Jerusalem, which Isaiah then goes on to talk about. When God's wrath finally falls, his judgment will be awful. It will be like God crushing his enemies in a wine press. It will also be universal. The Lord's sickle will sweep across the entire earth. None of the wicked will escape. The Lord's judgment will also exclude them from the blessings of His kingdom. Notice back in Revelation uh, 14 that the trampling happens outside the city. What city? We might say, well, it's God's city. Inside the city are God's people. Outside the city are those He will trample. They will never get to enjoy fellowship with God in the new Jerusalem. Someone might ask, though, why? Why is this happening? Why will the Lord do this? Well, because like we saw in Joel chapter 3, their evil is great. God's judgment will be deserved. In in Joel's prophecy, he said that their evil filled up the vats, but but here it's even worse. It says, the blood flows from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So the vats can't even contain it. It's, it's flowing as high as a horse's bridle in the land. That's you know, about five feet. So that what we're getting here is a picture that when the people or the grapes are pressed, this is how much evil comes out. I want you to remember from chapter 14, verse 8, It said that Babylon made all the nations drink the wine, the wine, the grape juice, right? The wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, we also read that Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints. And so this wine of harlotry, of unfaithfulness, this 
this wine of them spilling the blood of God's people. That is the evil inside the grapes. And there's so much evil that these grapes are, they're bursting with evil. God has been patient with them, but they have kept ignoring Him and increasing their evil to the point of bursting. And the imagery here is that once they're crushed, the blood is the evil as high as a horse's bridle, about five feet. It com- this comes from warfare. After a great sl- slaughter, the blood of the dead soldiers would run into the rivers and the streams. And when you're taking your horses back home and they're sloshing through the water, the blood of these dead soldiers are lapping up against the bridle. So there's a river of evil flowing here that was destroyed. It, it also flows, it says, 1,600 stadia. That's nearly 200 miles. That could be, some people think, the length, about the length of, 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 of Israel, from Dan to, Dan to, to Beersheba. Um, and so it could be a picture of the whole land here filled with evil, or 1,600 stadia is... Is also the, it's the product of four squared times a thousand. And in Revelation, four is the number that represents every point on the compass. So what we're seeing here is that the picture would be that God is judging all evil everywhere. So what do we do with such an awesome and awful picture of judgment. How how should this final harvest affect our living right now? What does it look like to keep the words of this prophecy? That's what chapter 1 said, blessed is he who not only reads the words of this prophecy and hears them, but who keeps them. How do you keep a prophecy like this? Well, one is to prepare yourself for the harvest. Prepare yourself for the harvest. To return where we started, history is not cyclical. It is linear. Jesus is taking history to the new heaven and the new earth, but to get, the, but to get there, everyone must face the judgment. They must face the harvest. So are you ready for the harvest If you do not belong to Jesus, you are not ready for the harvest. You won't be gathered like the wheat into the Lord's barn. You will suffer in the winepress of God's wrath outside the city. You will be forever cut off from His sweet fellowship. Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, and that's what you deserve for your evil. It is what we all deserve for our evil. But I want you to hear this before Jesus comes to tread that winepress. Jesus, the warrior, went to battle for you at the cross. And at the cross, he warred against your evil. And when he did, he soaked his garments, not with your blood, but with his own blood. 
and he did it in your place. The Lord crushed Jesus in your place. He put on him all of our evil, and he judged it in the death of his son. Jesus, the warrior, became Jesus, the high priest, so that his blood could atone for your sins. So prepare yourself for the harvest by trusting in him, in that warrior, in that high priest who gave his life first for you. Also prepare for the harvest by turning from the evil of the nations. Prepare for the harvest by turning from the evil of the nations. If, if, if God feels this strongly about the nation's evil, then it ought to renew a, a passionate hatred for your own proclivities to evil. If God is this passionate about destroying evil, it ought to drive us to destroy it in our own lives. If, if you ask, well, like what evil? What evil are we talking about? I mean, Revelation has given us, given us a smattering of examples already. You know, some of those include idolatry, from the, the love of money to setting your hopes in political figures of this world. They include moral compromises that defile the soul or, or even just forgetting about Jesus to have the comforts of Rome or America. But if we go back to Joel chapter 3 again, and I mean, that's where... John's pulling this imagery from. If we look even in Joel chapter 3, he gives us some examples there as well. For example, the nations mistreat God's people. It's their characteristic. It's characteristic of the nations to mistreat God's people. This week I read several threads where Christians could otherwise, in humility, interact with, one, with, with each other's political positions with integrity. But instead, they resorted to lying about their brother's position to gain traction for their position. The goals are noble, but bearing false witness against your brother or sister in the faith to achieve those goals is to follow the nations in their evil. It is to mistreat God's people. In Joel chapter 3, verse 5, the nations use the Lord's possessions to serve their own gods. So one way to prepare for the harvest is to ask yourself, how am I stewarding my possessions? Right. So be careful not to use the Lord's possessions to serve other gods, to to serve your own uh, passions. Or we could also say our possessions to draw others to the praise of God. So you guys, in Psalm 67. So how, how, how are your possessions being used to draw others, others in your home, others in your workplace, others that you meet on the street? How are, how are they being used to, to draw others to God's praise? 
Our resources should help others in their time of need. Ephesians 4.28 is one of the reasons we work. We work in order to have, in order to give to those in need. So, how are you using those to help others in their time of need? If you're using God's possessions for purposes other than His kingdom, well then check yourself here. In Joel chapter 3, verse 3, the nations also disregard the vulnerable to satisfy their cravings. Uh, it talks about them trading, a, trading boys for prostitutes and girls for wine. This is just this complete disregard for human life. As one writer put it, the true measure of any society is the way it treats those who can't protect themselves. So how do you treat those who can't protect themselves, right? Like we can think of the big examples in Scripture like the orphan and, and the widow. We, we could include in that the, the pre-born. Is our church a refuge for these vulnerable people? Is, is your home a place where the vulnerable find nurture and care and acceptance? So these are where we, we can... Turn from the evil of the nations. That's how we can prepare. And you can get some of those more examples. Just keep reading Joel chapter 3. That's just a few of them. And then we can also follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, I just took that straight from chapter 14, verse 4. But I want to remind you of it again. One, another way, we don't just avoid what the nations are doing. We also do what Jesus is doing. Uh, among the nations, right? We, we, pre- we also prepare for the harvest by throwing ourselves into everything that Jesus commanded, right? The, it's like the parables of the master being away for a little while and he's left us some things to do. And faithful is the one, right, that he finds doing them when he comes. So that includes things like being a faithful witness to the truth and showing hospitality, Devoting yourself to prayer, working hard unto the Lord. If you follow the Lamb and commit yourself to His teachings, then then you will be ready. You don't have to be fretting. As long as you're following Jesus, you don't have to be fretting and worried. Am I going to be ready? You will be because you're following Christ. Making disciples is something else He talked to us about, right? So, I mean, a good question to ask. Who am I discipling right now? You know, is there anyone that, that you're reading the Scripture with or teaching about Jesus? God has also given you various gifts to serve and, and build up the church. So how are you utilizing those gifts and skills to build Christ's church? The things that you own, right? How are they strategically serving Christ's kingdom? In what ways are you sharing them with others? When it comes to, to missions and evangelism, does the harvest compel you to get the message out? To, to those who don't know, know Jesus yet. Which brings us to another way that this vision should affect us. Warn others about the harvest. So I pull this from, back from chapter 11 of Revelation where it pictures the church as the two witnesses, right? And they're going out preaching the gospel. So warn others about the harvest. Prepare others. Judgment is coming. People need to know that. Peter O'Brien put it this way. He's he's actually making comments on Romans, but 
but I think it fits here as well. Um, He says, if we know the desperate plight of men and women under divine judgment, because we ourselves were once there, if if we know their desperate plight, and, and we know that the gospel is the only hope for deliverance from wrath to come, then we should be wholly involved in bringing it into the lives of others. I, uh, I remember a illustration that Ben had mentioned one time of, of the cartoon character who's got all the, the invitations, you know, he's stacking, ha- handing them out to, to, to everyone. That, that's the idea, like the Lord has entrusted you, right, with the message to, to give to others so that they, they, are, they, are, they hear about the coming judgment and they hear from you about the person of Jesus who can save them from the wrath to come. So many people in the world are living like the world is heading nowhere. They're just coasting along like nothing matters and like we won't have to give an account. But what we're learning from this passage is that the world is heading somewhere. And it includes judgment. So let people know that there will be a judgment and then offer them the person of Jesus. And then lastly, the vision of final harvest should give us hope for the defeat of evil. It should give us hope for the defeat of evil. When you read about the evildoers here being trampled, do not forget that the the people that John is writing to Turn back to chapter 11, verse 2. Chapter 11 of Revelation, verse 2. He says, Don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And we talked about how God's people are not only being depicted there as as his temple, but it's gathered into the city and they're like an embattled city where the nations are trampling them down for 42 months. So what are the nations doing to God's people right now? They are trampling them for 42 months, which is the whole tribulation period from the ascension of Jesus to his return. It's the whole tribulation people, the the nations are trampling God's people. And it is the same word for trampling that's used in chapter 14, verse 20. When God tramples them outside the city. That's who John's writing to. Those who are being trampled and destroyed by the nations. Those who are being persecuted and put to death and spilling the blood of Christians. That's that's who he's writing. He's writing to, to, to the, the, the people who are suffering under persecutors. And here we find for them that God will avenge his people. Jesus is a husband who is jealous to protect his bride. And in his jealous passion, he will rescue his bride from those who are abusing her. That's the idea. 
He will fight to see you delivered and safe in His holy city. It can feel like the Lord doesn't see evil. At times we pray with Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And you may even be discouraged because of the way evil seems to prosper. But this passage says to take heart, beloved. The Lord sees. He will return and He will right all wrongs. He will judge your enemies. This gives us hope for the future. It also means we don't have to avenge ourselves in the present. We can live peaceably with all knowing that God will judge. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Peter 2, 23 also sets before us the example of Jesus to imitate. It says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So knowing that God will judge our enemies actually helps us be a people of mercy towards others because we don't have to be the ones to take that into our hands. God will do it, and he is the one who is righteous. He alone is righteous, and so his judgments will be righteous. We don't have to do that. We serve others in the path of love, even if it means our death, and we leave judgment to the Lord. God will see to it that his enemies are brought to justice. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this vision of the harvest. Um, We ask that it would motivate us to prepare ourselves for it. Um, We need your help here. We need your forgiveness for where we have failed to prepare, and we need your zeal for where uh, we can commit ourselves more wholeheartedly. So I pray that you would grant that. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that enables us to come to you without fear of any wrath. Remind us that of that now as we take the supper together in Jesus' name. Amen.